listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with author David Ellis about his new book, Look Closer. David is a judge on Illinois' appellate court for the First District and an Edgar Award-winning author of 10 novels of crime fiction. He also is co-author with James Patterson for eight best-selling books. Welcome to the show, David. Mike, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, let me, I, I know our, our listeners will be interested in about this connection between crime novels and the law. How long did you <laughs> practice law before you went on the bench as a judge? I practiced law for about 22 years before I became a judge in 2014, 21 years. And then in 2014, I was elected to the appellate court, so it's been about eight years now. So as a judge, as a lawyer, you've been writing for years legal briefs and memos and motions. What is the difference, uh, if you think there is any, between writing in that style and then writing fiction, as in the crime novels you write? You know, there's a lot less of a difference than people would think. Um, in both instances, if you're writing a brief as a lawyer, you're advocating usually to a judge, sometimes to a jury. But if it's in writing, it's to a judge. And, and you have to think about your audience. You have to know that judge and know what will move that person, him or her, um, what will persuade them. You're trying to bring them in. You're trying to connect with them. You want the judge to read a legal brief and say, oh, yeah, no, I get what he's saying. Yeah, that's right. And that's the same thing you do with a book. With a novel, you're trying to connect with the reader. I want you as the reader to get lost in the book. I want you to forget that somebody was toiling with all these words to make them all look really nice for you. I want you to get lost in the story. With a legal brief, I want you to get lost in my argument and the story I'm telling you there. They're both stories. We are a storytelling society. You talk to a trial lawyer. Mike, I know you were a lawyer. Uh, trial lawyers will refer to themselves as storytellers. They tell a story to the jury. It's the story that favors them. The other side's going to have their own story. So all of these things really come in the package of a story. It's how people are wired to receive information from early childhood, really. And so, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, when you start writing a legal brief, you have to get all formal. You have to use Latin. You have to use multisyllabic words. But I throw all that out the window. I'm trying to connect. I just want you to understand what I'm trying to say. And I want to be as clear and persuasive as possible. And that's usually not using legalese. That's usually just talking to people, just intelligent conversation. The connection and that sort of clarity is really something that you need in both kinds of writing. Well, so you, I always say, you know what, they're, 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 the lawyers get into trouble when they put the word legal before writing, <laughs> to think of legal writing. Good writing is good writing. Well, I, let me just say, having read the book, Look Closer, you certainly accomplished that. Well, and that's a fascinating way to connect the two, the legal writing and the other. Let me ask you this. I know that many of our listeners would probably be familiar with James Patterson. How did you come to collaborate with him on the eight different novels? So the first book I ever wrote back around the turn of the century <laughs> in about 2000 was a book called Line of Vision. And back then, you know, I was just starting out. I was a no-name. And you send your book around to authors hoping they'll say something nice about it that you can put on the cover. And I sent one to Jim Patterson on a lark, and he loved it. He loved my first book. And uh, it, today, if you, if you pick up my book, his blurb will be on the front cover. Yeah. And um, fast forward, you know, Maybe nine or ten years later, I have an, a new agent, a new literary agent who used to publish James Patterson. He was the head of Warner Books, 
they're having lunch as they often do. And Jim's asking my agent, how's the new gig being a literary agent? And they start talking about their clients and he mentions my name and Jim says, Oh, I know Dave Ellis. He wrote line of vision. Anyways, short story, you know, a long story short, I guess, um, you know, my agent said, do you want to write with him? And I said, I'm not sure I know how to write a James Patterson novel. We write differently. Our books are different. Mm-hmm. He said, well, call him. First of all, don't be an idiot. You know, <laughs> if James Patterson wants to work with you. You should think about that very seriously. And I, and I did think about it very seriously, but I was not sure it would work. And so I called him. I called Jim Patterson and I said, look, I'm very flattered, but I don't know how to write a James Patterson book. And what he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, I don't want you to write a James Patterson book. I want you to write a James Patterson, David Ellis book. I want you to bring your skills. I have co-authors. They're all different. They all bring different skill sets. That allows me to create a lot of fresh work with different people. Same basic ideas, same signature Patterson, but different at the same time. And I thought, you know, how can I say no to that? And, And it's a... It's a true collaboration. You know, there is not one day we've worked together where he has made me feel like he's the boss and I'm the employee, even though technically that's probably true. Yeah. Um, he, there's mutual respect. He wants to know what I think. If I want to try something in a book, he'll say, let's give it a try. If it doesn't work, then we won't do it. But if it works, I don't care whose idea it was. And we sort of go from there. It's, uh, it's, been, a, it's, it's been a great and it's been incredibly educational to learn from that guy. Good. Well, let's talk about the new book. Look closer. All right. So the story starts off with a chapter titled Simon, in which the narrator, dressed as the Grim Reaper, says, quote, the best lies are the ones closest to the truth, close quote. I don't want to get into too much detail, um, but we're led to believe that a murder may have happened. Um, have you found that to be a good way to draw the reader into a story by starting off with a potential crime that's at the center of the novel? Yeah, I mean, you know, you certainly want to start with a grabber and, and you have to make decisions in, the, in the, the working of the book. What do you want the reader to know first? And the least mysterious thing in the book is that Lauren is going to be dead right away. Mm-hmm. And so there was no reason for me to hide that. And, and what we try to do afterwards is we try to unwind things and sometimes go back in time um, and and look back as to how the different characters work around this murder. It's not the only tragedy that occurs in the book, but it certainly right. um, starts the thing going. And so as I was plotting it, it made all the sense in the world to start that way. But yeah, Mike, you're right. I mean, you know, I don't want to start the book on a boring note, right? I want to, I want to grab you, and I, I think this grabs you. It does. It does. it does. Well, yeah. let me, let me ask you if I can to get you to read maybe a little part of that first chapter for the listeners. Sure, I will. Uh, I'll start from the start because that probably makes the most sense. So this is chapter one of Look Closer, or the part of, of chapter one. I check my green burner phone for the time. It's now 8.51 p.m., nine minutes to nine, nearly two hours since trick-or-treating ended, and Grace Village plunged into darkness, the residents of this bedroom community hunkering down for the night. Police cruisers will be out tonight, but there are none currently on Lathrow Avenue, at least as best as I can tell, standing in Lauren's foyer, looking through the peephole of her front door with emotion clouding my eyes. Not tears. I'm not crying. I thought it possible that tears would come, even likely, but they have not. And now I'm sure they won't. Tears are for sadness, regret, remorse. I'm not calm exactly, certainly not what I would describe as normal. Far from that. A dull ringing fills my ears and the thump, 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 thump of my pulse echoes through me. 
a bellowing bass drum no symphony orchestra could match. Still, my hand does not shake as I reach for the inside door handle, an ornate gold latch you'd expect to open a vault of princely treasures. But no jewels or riches beyond this door, only danger. I'm not supposed to be here inside Lauren's house. I turn one last time and look behind me in the foyer. Lauren's body dangles from the second floor landing, her toes no more than a few feet above the marble foyer floor. She is motionless, coming to rest facing me, her head lolled unnaturally to the right, resting on the knotted rope wrapped around her neck. Her head so askew it looks as if it might detach and fall to the marbled floor. She is wearing a skin-tight cat costume, complete with makeup, painted whiskers, and button nose. Even the nails on her fingers and toes are painted black. Halloween Barbie, if there is such a thing, and I'm sure there is. Rising from the noose, the rope strains taut against the ornate wrought iron railing on the second story overlooking the open foyer. Watching her, no matter how glamorous her looks, how sexy her outfit, conjures the image of a butcher's freezer, freezer, the slabs of beef hanging from large hooks in the ceiling. Happy Halloween, Lauren. Wow. Well, that certainly draws the reader in. Let me, <laughs> let, let me ask you this, David. In crafting these crime novels, and in particular, Look Closer, uh, and the characters that you create, are you drawing on your experience with cases as a lawyer or judge? Well, you always get ideas from them. And, you know, I'm reading, I'm on the appellate court, so I get the appeals. So I'll get trial transcripts and I'll get all sorts of evidence and I'll, I'll read, you know, intercepted conversations and transcripts of those. And, you know, you see some clever people doing clever things. And sometimes you see a, 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 a set of facts and you think, you know, you play the game of what if, you know, mm-hmm. but what if I had these set of facts, but then this happened? Um, so, yeah, you, you, you learn some knowledge. I mean, there's some stuff in this book about the technology of police work. Right. Um, nothing heavy handed, but, you know, tracking people by their cell phones, for example. I've had a lot of cases dealing with that, mm-hmm. the constitutional implications, but also just how it works. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that kind of stuff just teaches me. You know, that's it becomes my research without me realizing it. I got you. Well, you know, OK, let's talk about the book a little bit more in detail. There is mm-hmm. a father son, what I'm going to describe as a father son controversy in the novel. Um, And I always ask writers, and it's it's amazing how often this comes up, if that is something from which you are drawing on personal experience. No, I had an idyllic childhood. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago with a nuclear family. We were probably, you would describe us as upper middle class. We weren't by any means rich, but we didn't want for anything. And I thought I... I, I had everything I needed. I, I had a wonderful family that you would probably describe as, as boring. Certainly, if I wrote about it in a book, you'd say, nothing's happening here but good stuff. Well, that's good. You know, and, and, and so that's good. I've sort that... of been drawn to broken relationships yeah, and yeah. twisted people, probably because my growing up was so normal. <laughs> well, that's good. All right. Now, one of the things that authors often say to me is that if they create a good character or characters, the characters, and people are puzzled by this, the characters actually help write the story. I actually even had an author in one time who said, you know, his characters will say, no, I'm not going to do that. Have you found that to be true with your writings and with the book, like, look closer? I absolutely find that to be true. You know what what happens, Mike, is as I'm writing the book, I get to know the character better. Some people are maybe better than I am about knowing their character before they start, and they do all sorts of things with their characters. They write letters from the standpoint of their characters. They do all these little devices, and maybe I'll try that someday, but I don't. 
I have a general idea of what I want, but I find the character changing as I'm writing. And the plot will change with the character. The character drives everything, you know, and I've got some very dark and twisted characters, but I, they're all, I think, multidimensional. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them are all bad, and, and they're certainly not all good. Um, and there, there's some things that they deal with that, you know, morally you might, there might, it might be debatable. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've had that, I had that happen in this book. I had moments where I thought, no, my character would draw the line there. Uh, I had planned on this character doing something, but now that I've written the character out, now I'm on page 200 and I've really gotten to know this character. And so is the reader, they wouldn't do this. And so I'm going to have to do something different. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the organic process of writing. It's one of the great things about writing is it's not a static exercise. And do you find that, and, and again, this is more psychological, I guess, that you live with your characters while you're writing? Um, think about them during the day. Somebody says something and it prompts you to think, hmm, I wonder if Simon would have done that or something like that. Yeah, all the time. I, I always live with these characters. I'm always thinking about what they might want to do. My wife can tell if I had a bad day writing by my mood. So say, oh, it didn't go so well this morning, Dave. You know, I mean, it, it, it affects my mood. Um, it's a, you know, I write early in the morning. That's, uh-huh. that's my writing routine. So by 7 a.m., I've written for three, three and a half hours. Oh, wow. And, that's, and then I stop, and then I go be a dad and a judge. But nobody's awake between 3.30 and 7 in the Ellis household except for me, and so that's when I write. I got you. And, um, yeah, right. And so the idea that these characters are always with me. Okay. I mean, Simon and Vicky, they're still with me. Uh-huh. I still think uh-huh. about them, and I'm, on the, I'm almost finishing up my next book. Well, and I still think about them. And, and you know what? Having read the book and, and having read other really good authors, they stay with the reader as well, um, you know, for days after. And I'm sure you've had that experience with other books that you've read. I have, and I'll have people come up to me and ask me things, and, and it, sometimes I, I almost have to laugh. They'll say, you know, what do you think Simon did afterwards? Do you think he <laughs> took that job? Do you uh-huh. think, you know, I'll be like, you're thinking of this person as a real person, and that means I did something right. I mean, that's the most gratifying thing you can get. You know, I, I mentioned before this idea of connecting. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing my job poorly, you're going through the motions reading the book. You may not even finish it, right? But right. if I draw you in, then these people become real and I let your imagination and my words combine because a lot of this is letting the reader you know picture the characters themselves you don't want to overdo it you, they, 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 they fill in a lot of the blanks and I'll have people give me very different opinions of my characters one person will say oh, I, I thought you know he was a he was a sweet guy who maybe you know had something bad happen to him and I'll have other people say oh he's a he's a terrible guy and I'll think okay you know, there's no right or wrong. It's what you came, right. it's what you took from the book, and it's, that's really fun for me. Well, let, let me follow up on the character development there. Have you had occasion, whether it's in Look Closer um, or in one of your other books, where people will tell you that they got something out of the characters or the book that really wasn't on your radar when you wrote it? Oh, that, that happens all the time. Yeah. You know, when I wrote my first book, Line of Vision, um, th- that was about a character named Marty who gets charged with the, the murder of his lover's husband. And, you know, they seek the death penalty against him. And, you know, it goes to trial and there's a whole thing at the end. And somebody said to me after they read it, oh, I had no idea that you opposed the death penalty. So <laughs> and I said, what makes you say that? I said, well, it's all over the book. I said, it is. I never yeah. said that in the yeah. book. And they said, well, you didn't have to say it. 
but you're clearly against the death penalty. And I said, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. okay. Well, you know, you never know, right? I mean, it's, it's still you. Uh, you're trying to write characters and keep yourself out of it, but you can't keep yourself completely out of it. It's crazy. But that's also a sign of good writing because the net has got cast even broader than you initially intended. But let me yeah, ask you this. Right. In the book, and this is it's interesting to me about crime novels, in the book you give us some clues along the way about what may have happened, Okay. How do you, in writing a book like Look Closer, balance saying just enough for the reader to start guessing, which is what I did, but not so much that it's immediately clear? You know, a lot of that is going back after you've done a first draft. I mean, I'm pretty good at that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think I know what I'm good and not as good at, and, and that is one of my strengths, yep. is being able to be manipulative enough. But the good news for the author is I don't turn in that book until I'm done. And I can go back because it's on a computer. You know, I'm not Mickey Spillane on a typewriter. I can go back to chapter four and say, I need to change that a little bit so I don't give it away too much. Right. And it's not a fair fight, right? Because these are, you know, books like this really, you know, I wanted, I wanted this book to be fun. And I think of these kind of books as a game between the author and the reader that all sides are playing willingly and happily. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of not a fair fight because – you're going to read it in the order I gave it to you and in the way I gave it to you. But I get to, you know, in, in, until it goes out on the bookshelves or, you know, in the electronic atmosphere, I, I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And, and I can. I, and so it's really, it, you know, what you see is probably something where I went back and, and spent maybe a whole day trying to think of how to how to present one piece of information the right way. I'm pretty good at it anyways. That's one of the things I do well. But you know, if if I'm not sure I've done it, I can always keep tweaking it, and, and that's that's the fun part of being the author is is because I'm thinking about you the whole time, Mike. I'm thinking about the reader. How is the reader going to digest this piece of information? I want to give it to them so it's fair, but I don't want to tell everything. I don't want to, you know, give away the ghost. Well, you certainly did it well and looked closer. I guessed at least three or four times wrong as I was reading along. So, <laughs> good job there. Can I get you to read another excerpt from the novel so folks will get a little bit more flavor of it? Sure thing. Um, I and, think I'm going to pick up where I left off. Oh, okay. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So he just said a happy Halloween to Lauren. I, I take a step forward, but my boot crunches on a shard of broken glass from the bowl of Halloween candy shattered in the foyer. Whatever the reason I had for stepping toward her, one last goodbye replacing the heel that fell off her left foot, I think better of it and turn to the door. I pull down the latch and open the front door, the cool October air rushing into the space inside the hood over my head, which covers my face completely and blocks my peripheral vision. I forgot to check through the peephole again before opening the door. That was sloppy. This is not a night to be sloppy. I walk through the empty streets of the village in my grim reaper costume, pillowcase clutched in my left hand, passing skeletons hanging from trees, tombstones planted in front yards, orange lights illuminating shrubbery, ghosts frowning at me through windows. My my head buried inside this elongated hood, my height at 5 feet 11. I could pass as a teenager trick-or-treating late, which wouldn't fly, given the village's strict curfew, or as an adult leaving some kind of party, for which I can name no host or address. I should walk with a natural stride, like I have in a care in the world, an anonymous man covered head to toe in a black robe and hood on the one night of the year that it wouldn't seem odd. Still, I should have an answer at the ready, should a police cruiser stop by. As a wise woman once told me, the best lies 
are the ones closest to the truth. Walking home, I will say if asked, too much to drink. That'll have to do. The drinking part isn't true, but hard to disprove. The walking home part is close enough. I'm walking in that direction at least. So on I walk through the square grid of the small village, reaching the park on the southeast end of town, crossing the diagonal path, passing some homeless people, swing sets and jungle gyms, a pack of teenagers huddled on the hill with beers they try to conceal. I put one foot in front of the other and try to act normal and think about normal things. It's been a long time since I've thought about normal things. I haven't felt normal since May 13th. Oh, yeah, that was that drew me in right then when I got to that part. All right. All right. <laughs> and guess what the next scene is? The next yeah, scene I know. I know. But, uh, <laughs> you did that very well. So uh, let's go back to characters for a minute. Simon is a law professor. OK, no joke yeah. there. You're a judge, David. And Vicky is a has been a domestic violence advocate of some sort. How important is it to give these characters these type of professions in creating the overall character? Oh, I think it can be vital. It depends on, on what you choose to do. But, you know, for Simon, from a plot standpoint, right. he needed to be an expert on the Fourth Amendment. Yep. Um, he needed to be an expert on some of the issues like cellular location information. Um, with Vicki, uh, the, the job she has is is very true to her character. It, it's, it just comes naturally. It was the easiest thing in the book was picking what Vicki does for a living. Because it's exactly what she would do. She's had a hard life. Mm -hmm. and she's, she's been mistreated her whole life, and she's been underappreciated and underestimated her whole life. And by the end of the book, you're not going to underestimate Vicky. But um, no, you know, I mean, that's part of the whole package, right? And sometimes people put those things in as throwaways, and I never understand that. It's critical. I mean, it's, it's you know, what you would choose to do for a living says a lot about you as a person. And, and so when I'm drawing the character, that's one of the biggest decisions I make. Well, and I think, and this is one of my last questions, but I think that draws us into the bit of the ethical dilemma that the book creates. People do yeah. things which are, I'm going to say, for example, are evil, but the reader, I know this was true for me, is, was not sure who to cheer for and who to despise. <laughs> is, and, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, well, was that intentional uh, as part of your crafting of the story? Oh, it was completely intentional. And, you know, it's sort of like the difference between legal and just. And, you know, in the law, you probably remember from law school, we had like mala prohibita and mala and say. And it was the difference between saying it's wrong because there's a law against it and it's morally wrong. And those are two different things. And people can have some very big arguments and debates about certain things in our society that they don't think are morally wrong, but they've been outlawed. And, you know, um, this book is a lot about obsession and betrayal and revenge and justice, really. You know, I say revenge. People say, oh, this book, there's, there's revenge in this book. And I say, well, that's one way of looking at it, or it's just looking at it from one person's viewpoint of what's just, what justice should uh, be dealt out. And so, yeah, you know, the tension between those things has always fascinated me. And it popped out immediately when I started writing this book that that's what we were going to talk about. Well, let me ask you this then. We'll end with this. From your perspective, and I know this is an unfair question, are there, <laughs> any, are there any heroes in the book? Um, <laughs> <laughs> For, I, I, think, um, I think that Vicky is a hero. I okay. think that, 
So there's four viewpoints. I think the two women are heroes. Okay. I think that Vicky is a hero, and I think the detective Jane Burke, talk about underestimating. Uh-huh. She's a cop in a small town. A murder is committed. It's the first murder in the history of the town. And if you've lived in a small town, you know what I'm talking about. It's yeah. a, a nice police force, but they don't have to deal with the stuff that Chicago has to deal with. And suddenly she's thrust into this position where the small little affluent community is demanding that the killer be caught immediately, and it's up to her to do it. And she ends up being more than up to the task. Um, so I, I loved her, and, and Vicky, I think, is you know, probably my personal favorite. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think both of the female characters are heroines. Well, you know, as the reader, I, I'm going to agree with you on both counts. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tucson. Today, I've been speaking with author David Ellis about his new book, Look Closer. David, um, do you have a website or are there other places that people can go to get more information about you, about Look Closer and about your other books? Well, yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, my, my website is my name, davidellis.com, and David Ellis will get you my Facebook page and my Instagram page. And, yeah, and, and, and boy, social media these days. Um, the response on Instagram has been unbelievable. I, I had no idea how many people reviewed books on Instagram. They call them bookstagrammers. Huh. So I've been educated on this, and um, it, the, the response has been wonderful and uh it's like a whirlwind right now. Um, and so, yeah, Mike, uh, that's how you can reach me. And, you know, a thank you to anybody who, who takes a moment to read it. And if you can figure out, look closer, if you if you figured it out before the ending, please reach out to me and tell me how you figured it out. I'll be interested to know. Okay. David, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show, and best of luck to you. Okay, Mike. Thanks for having me. This was great. Hang on.